0: I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. I've been taking
1: these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got.
2: There's more to life than a little money,
0: you know. I'm the dude, so that's what you call me, you know? Uh... The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on.
2: Jeez. Welcome to The Life of the Mind, the podcast about the Coen brothers. My name is Jason Kyle, and joining me are my co-hosts, Barbara Vanderberg. Hi. And Chris Ayers. Hello. And today we're here to talk about Fargo. Our guest, Megan Abbott, will join us in a few moments. So um, how long has it been since you guys seen this movie?
0: How long has it been? Yeah. Like, like five days? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean.
2: before then
0: oh before that um yeah a month i watched it twice in the last month before that uh maybe a year and a half
2: i think this
1: movie is maybe the most has the most regular presence in my life of any coen brothers movie like it's really easy for me to be like hey let's throw in fargo so i wouldn't know how to calculate when the last time I saw this was or how many times I've seen it. I did get to see it uh, some years ago in 35mm. I got to see it on film at the loft in Tucson, and that was pretty cool. It was the first time that the scope of the cinematography and just how effective the cinematography was, like, really, really, really hit me. Um, also the score. Like, if you listen to that that score in a proper theater audio setting it's pretty revolutionary
2: (laughs) it's intense yeah it's probably my favorite Cara burwell score of all the ones he's done um definitely the one that's most ingrained in my brain i remember this is like i was definitely working in a movie theater by then uh by the time this came out and my boss kept talking about this movie over and over again. And I was, what, 18? Uh, and I couldn't really go above 8 Mile because I was living in Detroit. um, Because that meant I had to go through Detroit. <laughs> and something could happen. I could get hurt. <laughs> and then I would get killed. You could get into a rap battle, maybe. Yeah, I would get into a rap battle. Um, I would mom's spaghetti would be tossed at me um so i had to wait till it came to like one of the theaters in our town like i saw it like two months like after it originally came and it was so
0: worth the wait (laughs) like it was just instantly loved it so i have a question for you guys when's the last time you saw snow because you're both in arizona (laughs) i saw
1: actually my dad moved to payson arizona which is like right at like the snow line right where it starts to like snow in the winter and so i visited him my birthday was in uh middle of february and i went and visited him around my birthday and we got a snowstorm it was like kind of a problem i needed to get home uh i had some things that i needed to do in phoenix and i had to like wait a couple days because it was you couldn't see like 10 feet in front of you i was driving we drove up to pine for dinner and it was clear when we drove and then when we hit like this it was clear for most of it and then we hit this certain point in elevation and i could not see 10 feet in front of my car on this windy icy mountain road at night and i was like oh i i made a mistake (laughs) you screwed up i've never driven I'm like a good driver, but I've never driven in those conditions. And I had like an instant panic attack and you can't pull over. There's nowhere to pull over. It's just like one lane, like little mountain roads. And I'm like, we're going to, I was certain we were going to die. And I was like, this isn't how I wanted to go. Um, And then I had to drive back in it. So uh, yeah, like two weeks ago and I hated it. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm recording from Canada, not the part of Canada that's near Minnesota or North Dakota, West Canada, and Vancouver. But it is currently one degree above freezing, and it's a hundred percent chance of snow. So I'm hoping that starts during the the Fargo episode. <laughs> um, you might hear me exclaim later.
2: Yeah. And I I went to uh, Detroit in uh, at the end of December, and it had ju- they had just gotten like three four inches of snow like the day before. And I'm dressed like in a t shirt and long pants. And I'm like going, Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's just like cold. <laughs> and my aunt let me borrow her car and I hadn't driven in Michigan Roads for about a decade. And I forgot like about black ice and <laughs>
0: potholes. <laughs> it was just the worst. Uh, So anyway, so we mentioned at the our first intro episode that we were going to break this series up into seasons, and Fargo is the it's a clean break the the end of the first third of the Cohen brothers' filmography, which is a very impressive string of films, especially starting off as independent filmmakers. So I don't know. I will be off for an indeterminate length. we will just trying to figure this out, make some plans to come back with the next the like the mid period Cohen films. I'm so happy you guys would join me on this podcast. that, that we. I I didn't even think we'd get this far. I didn't even look ahead this far. <laughs> Six episodes.
1: I don't have a life. Of course I was going to make it this far. What else am I doing? I,
0: I, putting out one episode per month. I don't know how anyone does once a week. I have much admiration for someone who can put out an episode once a week. It's so much work.
2: Well, thank you for out putting this together, Chris. And thank you, Barb, for joining us. And... All the work that the two of you put into this. Um it's been a it's been a pleasure like revisiting these films so far. Um I can't believe I'm really proud of
0: what we've done so far. I can't believe we've gotten the guests we've gotten. Yeah, already. I thought it would take longer to get some some of these like pretty famous guests. Yeah. <laughs> no. We got lucky.
1: And and not only are we recording podcasts very regularly, you're also designing posters. For every single film we discuss.
0: Oh yeah, I am. And um,
1: why don't you hype those posters?
0: <laughs> I, I okay. Thanks. Thanks for setting me up. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have designed one poster for every film so far. The six, the first six films, uh, and you can find those on my Etsy shop if you look, search for Chris Ayers Creative, or it might be easier to just search for the Life of the Mind podcast. Um, I also have tons of posters from other films too. Probably like thirty movie posters I've designed over the last few years. Um. But what's interesting is that the my poster shop is how we landed our guest today. Uh, we had reached out to Megan Abbott a few months ago, knowing that she was a big Coen Brothers fan and had interviewed with the Coen Brothers uh, on the Miller's Crossing um, Criterion Blu-ray and just didn't hear anything back. Just figured that was, request was sent out and the ether would disappear. And then a couple weeks ago, I get an order on my Etsy shop from a Megan Abbott. And I'm like, is this the Megan Abbott? I just I just messaged her via the the Etsy system so someone said, just by any chance, are you, are you the author Megan Abbott? Because um, so we have a podcast and we would love for you to be on it. If you're not, disregard that. But if you are, please. And she accepted. She was very happy to be on Cohen Brothers podcast.
1: If you're just some plebeian Megan Abbott, we rescind the offer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This was total happenstance. I thought maybe there was some connection, she but she was unaware of the podcast when she bought the poster. So, I'm very happy that 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 worked out. Yes, I'm
2: I, I can't believe that all the DMs and emails your agent did not get to her, but I'm very happy well, that it did. Yeah. <laughs> just I, one email. And I, I, did, I did some DMs, my friend. I, so I tried. So
0: but it worked out. I'm really happy about that so i don't know if you guys are interested in doing any bonus episodes in the interim uh, side projects i feel like crime wave which is a film that i'm not really a fan of but is an interesting cultural artifact or maybe the fargo tv show have you guys seen the fargo show i have never seen that show
1: i have seen the first two seasons which i thought were great And then I, like, bailed a couple of episodes into the third season. But I'm, like, really surprised. The the first season especially, I went in very um, pessimistically and cynically. I'm like, Fargo is a perfect cultural artifact. How can you bastardize this into a television show? I was, like, not into it. And then I really liked it. So that would be an interesting one. But, like, Crime Wave would be super fascinating. I've never seen it. And I would like to... uh, I would like to fix that. Would I like to fix that? Is that a fixing it to watch it? Probably not. But I think that I think a failure would be interesting to discuss because they don't have that many of them.
0: We can acknowledge its existence. I think that's the best right. I can do with it. I, I don't like it, but I think it might be fun to watch. I
2: haven't watched it in about a decade. I do remember liking it when I saw it, Um, but they film most of it in my hometown. So I like anything where that happens.
1: Were you under, were you under the influence of illicit substances at the time?
2: I was not. So. Oh,
1: wow. Okay.
2: I mean, I've seen Michael Bay movies that are clearly filmed in Detroit that I like because they were filmed in Detroit and that's it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I have a, I have a question for when we kick off next season. I, I distinctly recall in our beginning episode, we had discussed the big Lebowski and our struggles with the Big Lebowski, and we had discussed the possibility of taking edibles before watching the Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've never taken edi- I've never taken edibles, but I'm willing to do this for the Big Lebowski. so I just want to like, is that something we're going to do? Because I need to like go figure out edibles if that's going to happen.
2: <laughs> I do too.
1: I would like to point out that I'm in Arizona where marijuana is legal, so
2: as am I. Um, but I have never heard a good, anyone have a good experience with edibles. Oh, shit. Yeah.
0: Well, I would say, give yourself some chance to figure it out. Don't, don't make the first time uh, on our record of the podcast. So see if you, see if it works for you. If it doesn't, we can call it off.
1: Wait, so are we just like, okay, so that's the second question. Are we, will we just be like high to watch? The Big Lebowski, or are we going to be high while we record?
0: I think it'd be more fun to do both.
1: We're going to commit. I will commit. All right. So anybody listening, if you want to be, if you're a person with some kind of follower count on Twitter, and you want to, and you, you enjoy partaking of marijuana, I am so square. I'm so fucking square. How do you <laughs> say it? If you like to smoke pot or do edibles, is that what the kids say? Um, I don't know what the us. kids say. Yeah, I don't know what the kids say. I'm such a square.
0: Give us some tips. I think I've, I think yeah. I've got my edible game figured out. I think, uh, I think I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more than um with
2: my wife and my father. I know both listening. <laughs> I,
0: I'm ready to commit. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah, you guys are both in a place where it's totally legal now, as of about a year and a year ago, maybe year and a half. It's been a while. Uh I'm in Vancouver where I think every drug every substance is decriminalized. I could probably smoke crack in the open in the park and not get a, not get arrested for it. I,
1: don't please don't do that though. I don't yeah, think that no, I for a good it. I don't think that would make for a good podcasting experience to be honest.
0: And and the words of the famous Whitney Houston crack is whack. <laughs> All right. So so you guys have some time to figure out <laughs> to get comfortable with it. All right.
1: DM us help us figure out how to do drugs please
0: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like that scene in office space help us money longer money <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i've i've done it but i've never done eyeballs because i've never heard no one's ever told me a good edible story <laughs> it just makes me scared
1: okay listeners with good edible stories let us know yeah uh,
2: give us your best ones give
1: us your best tips <laughs> Well, we'll also need to like we'll have to like balance this correctly because we'll also all need, I think, at least one white Russian.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah oh, yeah.
1: Recording. I mean, so.
0: <laughs> this Just pointing that out. This episode is going to be chaos. I think. <laughs> it's we what the kids call a
2: shit show.
1: <laughs> but maybe it'll make the Big Lebowski make perfect sense for the first time.
2: And we'll be right back with Megan Abbott.
0: Welcome back to the Life of the Mind, the podcast about the Coen Brothers. Today we're talking about Fargo with our guest, Megan Abbott. Uh, She's a New York Times bestselling author and also a screenwriter for The Deuce and adaptation of one of her own novels, Dare Me, on Netflix. Megan, welcome to Life of the Mind.
3: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad we connected.
0: Yeah, I told that story in the intro, so it's it's just the happenstance (laughs) was really great. Very happy.
2: We had actually had tried to contact you for another episode. So I'm very honored that you made time uh, for us, especially for this episode.
3: Oh, I'm so happy. It's such a random, uh, I don't know. It seems somehow that it was, it was uh faded that we
2: would come through this,
3: meet <laughs> through instead of the obvious channels mm-hmm. that somehow yeah. instead it would be through my love of Coen Brothers art. <laughs> um,
2: I'm curious what. What made you want to discuss Fargo as opposed to like another one of the later movies?
3: Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's several that I would have loved to to talk about, but I suppose this one really stuck out to me because it's the one I have had sort of the most complicated relationship to um, as a, as a Midwesterner. (laughs) I think it's the one that like hits squarely in the heart of, uh, of the Midwest. um, And so I've had sort of a, a, a long reckoning with it and have, have come to really, it's one of my favorites now, but it, it was a journey um, as opposed to some some of their other movies, which were right away, just, um, you know, I just adored. So this, this one, because it was a bumpier road, I think uh, it means more to me.
1: I'm, I'm curious where from the Midwest, where in the Midwest are you from and what was your initial if you went on a journey with this movie, what was that initial relationship with it?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm from the Detroit area in Michigan. So um, not deep Midwest as, as we see in the movie, but certainly very familiar with everything about it. I, um, and saw this, I guess, let's see, I would have been just Fair to, fairly recently had moved to New York, uh, which I came to go to NYU. So I was not in the Midwest when I saw I saw it the first time in the movie theater and uh, when it came out um, and had seen all their other. I don't know if I'd seen Blood Simple yet. That might have come later, but I'd seen their other ones um, and had, was just a big fan. Um and um, I guess watching it the first time, even though I I really was enjoying, and it, it was sort of dazzled as as one always is by the technical virtuosity of it and the humor, felt. Um, I guess it's sort of like when your private business is being um, shown in public uh, as a as, you know the sort of mid. Midwesterners are sort of mysterious, I think, sometimes to people in other parts of the country because there is such a veneer of smiling um, pleasantness, and there's so much going on beneath that. And, but it's so rarely uh, mined by someone from within it. And the Coen brothers being Midwesterners, they really just showed all our dirty laundry in this movie. Um, so so it was always one that I had... Um, um, you know, pricklier feelings about. But then I rewatched it years later, and I, you know, I I really liked it. And then during the pandemic, I watched it again after I read an interview with I think it was Ethan Cohen about it, um, and it changed the way I thought about the movie. Um, you may all know this, um, but I I guess it's he originally I guess. He said in the interview, I think this was on Fresh Air, that he and his brother really thought of the Marge character played by Francis McDormand as the antagonist <laughs> in the story. <laughs> as the um as the probable figure that I mean, didn't exactly call her a villain, but, but but close to it. And this was so fascinating to me because I think most people consider her a very beloved character and one of the warmest, I guess, and most um Um, nice quote unquote uh, characters in the in the Cohen canon, and I was fascinated by this. And since have seen it come up in other interviews of theirs, and and now I feel like I understand what he means in a way that just made the movie even richer for me when I then rewatched it. Um, and just opened up new possibilities.
2: Well, now I know what I'm watching
0: tonight. From the perspective of the the criminals, she is kind of like the Terminator or like, um, like Jason in the Friday the 13th movie. Like she just keeps coming relentlessly, confidently.
3: That's right. That's right. And I think for them, um, they felt, I think he went on to say that they felt that she had a far too simplistic view of the world um, and sort of a narrow-mindedness about it, that it didn't uh, allow for nuance or complexity or the mystery of other people's lives. And and that, you know, that they considered her, um, I guess I rather shallow, shallow person in that regard. And they, they considered the um, Steve Buscemi character, um, Carl, uh, to be more their 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 figure in the movie as like a even though they're investors but you know, as a stranger coming into a strange land um any scenes and he him, despite he does do some pretty nasty things in the movie obviously but he is the one that seems to be sort of besieged why people keep behaving the way they do everybody across the board and you do kind of feel for him for a lot of the movie um whether it's with his frustration with with jerry uh with his part his partner with um with any of the people sort of becomes across um his frustration i think in some ways this is the cohen's who i guess always felt rather out of place in the midwest um um and somewhat like outsiders there um um, which I did too so so um so yeah so I think I think it has to in some ways I connect it more to no country for Old men in, in terms of exploring different people's philosophies and that um of the world and that marriages is, is is too um it's not accommodating enough for how but of darkness um and and it's it's um and therefore they see her as um um, just a simple person, that, and, and uh, uh, therefore very limited. And I had even heard that in earlier drafts of the script, that that is that comes through more. But I think Francis McDormand re- resisted that, um, and definitely gives the character so much of the warmth that I think maybe even wasn't on the page with Marge. So, so it, it was so interesting to me.
2: Um, as a fellow Detroiter myself, I got asked, what part of town uh, are you from?
3: I've um, I'm from gross point. Okay. So, but, but near, near the freeway
2: So <laughs> I just <laughs>
3: um, where whereabouts for you.
2: I grew up in Allen park.
3: Oh, I know it very yeah. well. Yes. Oh my gosh, Downriver, as we yeah. used to say. I, I used to work
2: at the movie theater in Allen Park too, and I was telling them in the intro that, um, because I wasn't allowed to go above eight mile at that age yet, I because uh, I would have to travel through the city. I had to wait till Fargo came to Downriver, and like, which was about at least two months after it came out
3: that sounds about right
2: <laughs> that's really funny it's
0: called downriver you're literally like you're getting downriver uh, mm-hmm. media to your city
3: this is that's this is real inside Detroit stuff that we're, we're saying downriver because it has all these connotations <laughs> mm-hmm. too and and of course eight mile and I used to work uh, at a little Caesar's pizza at ghost Point and <laughs> eight mile if we thought people were calling the wrong one um because of their phone number, we would say, you know, it was really eight, eight miles of the divider, so yeah. between the suburbs and Detroit, as we all know from Eminem. Yeah, it's really, it's really quite true.
0: So, you, Megan, you mentioned uh, Ethan Cohen interview. I was just curious. Because you've had interview the Cohen brothers on the Miller's Crossing Criterion disc. And I'm just curious about how that came about.
3: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Really one of the most nervous days of my life. Um, that's my favorite of their movies um, as a as a lover of hard-boiled fiction. Um, uh, I adored it so much. And I had done some things for Criterion in the past, had done some essays, and they contacted me um because I think the Coens generally are resistant to, to talking about their past films. Just, they don't want to, my impression was, I, I'm not speaking for them, but they don't want to, I think they were very, they didn't want to do what does the hat mean? You know, <laughs> they didn't mm. want to answer that. And they were, they, they were sort of didn't want to, um, You know, explain their film, um, which I think sometimes is sort of how how uh, these retrospectives can go. And but they were open to talking about the hard boiled books that inspired it, and the folks at Criterion knew that I had I wrote my dissertation on hard boiled fiction, and I. I know it really well that that so I could talk to them about Dashiell Hammett and the Glass Key and all these Raymond Chandler, these inspirations. And so they were amenable to that. Um, but I was quite nervous because I know sometimes they can be um, quiet in interviews. <laughs> I'd seen and heard enough of them um, and they can sometimes... Um, maybe make stuff up is sort of the rumor so I was I was worried but they were great they were so wonderful um, and um, and game to talk about it um, um, and they really knew their hard fiction like deep deep stuff so it, it was it was a it was a you know I was very relieved <laughs> I was a little worried that I would ask a question they would give a one word answer
2: <laughs> Um. In terms of Fargo and what in the genre of fiction that you write you, you specialize in, how would you say this movie ranks as like a mystery or a, a noir?
3: I think to me it's squarely in the noir tradition. It really, you know, they, their James M. Kane is their big guy, really, even maybe more than Hammett, and so he's a big inspiration uh, behind the man who wasn't there is most directly, but. Um his novels Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity, Mildred Pierce, Serenade, they're they're really not about detectives or cops like so many of the other ones. They're really about criminals. Um Blood Simple is very cane-like as well, um, even though the phrase comes from Hammett. Uh but they're Kane really was interested in um writing about people who even more than career criminals more like the Jerry characters uh there's a regular person who in the right situation because of greed or lust or revenge uh steps over into crime um and then can't get out <laughs> um, <laughs> um it, and so that's always the the Kane story is that you know entering that you know giving into forbidden urge and then, um, and there's a lot of mishaps in Kane's novels. You know, sort of how crime is never as clean and tidy as it as slick as it often is in the movies. And you see that so much in Fargo, where the kidnapping and virtually everything doesn't go as it's supposed to, and and blood is spilled. So to me, it's. And, uh along with Bud simple probably the purest uh noir um of their movies even though it's in so many of them just because it's really it's really about that directly um and Marge's line and even about you know at the end about oh this is do you really need that the little you this, did this all for just a little more money yeah that's a big part of Noir's is, is is how that can um, erode you. Um, But they're never preachy either, which this movie never really is, even if Marge is a little bit. They're really right in it with you. Um, He was really Cain. They called him the poet of tabloid murder. And this really is, even the way they frame it, that it's based on a real story, um, is to sort of place it in that genre of a tabloid case.
2: And I'm kind of curious, it's it's a hard movie to describe. I mean, unless someone else has seen it, you can't really describe it. I, I wouldn't know how to describe it to someone who hasn't seen it before. Is it a suspense movie with funny moments or a comedy with suspenseful moments? I'm just kind of want to bring it to the group. Like, how would you do, like? What's your elevator pitch for this movie?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> one of the reasons I like the Cohen brothers so much is because I have. incredibly dark sense of humor so I've always thought of Fargo as being more black comedy than anything else which I think says something I think it says something about your character what it is you take away from Fargo and I have such a dark comedic sensibility this came up when we talked about Barton Fink as well we were trying to define what Barton Fink was and I was like I think it's hilarious (laughs) and I kind of think Fargo's hilarious too so for me it's very Comedy forward because I laugh a lot when I watch it, and I realize now as I'm saying it out loud that that's demented. Um, that it's a really dark, um, it's a really, really, really dark movie. But I find that the Coen Brothers are able to walk this this tightrope line that's very difficult of being able to be that dark while still being very funny. I I, I don't think a lot of people are very good at that kind of dark humor. So for me, it's very comedy forward.
0: Um, for me, it fits into what is my very my favorite very specific genre, which is the small town with the dark secret um, and the specificity of a small community like that. And you see that like in David Lynch and Twin Peaks. you see that in a lot of Stephen King. And I just love how the, the way more something that is more specific, the way it becomes more universal you know, like of the where I'm from, people make fun of the way we talk in the, the southeast uh, and I sort of subconsciously lost my accent a lot of it knowing that but also i love i love listening to specific regions dialect and accent so because this movie subverts a lot of expectations of a crime movie has this dark secret thing and the humor that's that really hit it for me this was the gateway movie for me when i first saw it so it was subverting things i didn't even know were subversions yet because i didn't know film noir or or hard-boiled fiction yet when i saw it
3: yeah i mean i would say um i sort of a trap to talk about genre in some ways with the Coen's because I think um, I too would call it a small town with a secret in many ways. And that is sort of better than maybe using strict genre terms. I think the tone is dark comedy, but I wouldn't call it a comedy because I think it's really interested in moral questions um, that, that, and that's what drives the narrative and the, the comedy is throughout. But I, I don't think it has the structure of a comedy. Um, and I think that's what partially what's makes them so subversive is that it can't land in any of these areas. I mean, maybe the genre is just Coen Brothers, you know? Right. Well, I mean, that's one
1: of the things that I like about the Coen Brothers so much. And, and my favorite movies of theirs are always the ones that are the hardest to categorize in that genre kind of way, because... It doesn't fit neatly into any one box. And in fact, the movies of theirs that
3: do fit neatly into any one box tend to be the ones I like the least. (laughs) It's so funny what you're saying about the line they walk, though, too. I think it's so interesting rewatching it, how the comedy can tilt there's they really will tilt you into something where you suddenly feel uncomfortable for laughing because it uh i just think of all the you know the the kidnap victim uh gene um there's something so funny and so upsetting about her we see her in this sort of mask over bag over her head and she's tied up and she's being menaced by these kidnappers And it's 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 really screwball comedy energy as she uh, at the same time as it's uh, very upsetting to to look at.
1: (laughs) I was really struck by that on this watch, because that scene where they enter the house and kidnap her, it's it's like you said, screwball. There's a lot of like physical kind of slapstick antics. She runs out of the bathroom. Tub with the shower curtain on her head and falls down the stairs, and you're laughing because it's really slapstick, kind of physical comedy, and it's yeah. funny, but it's incredibly horrific. She's just been kidnapped in a home invasion. She has no idea what's going mm. on. It's in, like just the kind of like shitbird you have to be to hire somebody to like kidnap your own wife and she's not in on it and then she dies off screen you just see her dead body lying on the on the ground and and their son's gonna be orphaned by this right like this father's gonna be in prison for the rest of his life his mother is dead the son's gonna be orphaned he has no grandfather his grandfather's been killed like poor scotty and i just like you're laughing and laughing and laughing at the physical comedy of it and when you like take a step back from it, you're like oh like her everybody's life just got ruined like devastatingly and it's yeah really bleak
2: (laughs) I was just thinking like I'm so glad that you two brought that scene because it's probably my favorite scene in the movie because it is so because it walks that line like it's frightening because you know what's going to happen and then when she like rolls down the stairs in the shower curtain and like this package ray for them to tie her up in it's you can't help but be like Carl and laugh a little bit But at the same time, you're like, oh my gosh, like, that's scary as hell. Um, It's kind of like, kind of sums up like the tone of the movie. Just this mildly, very suspenseful and dark and kind of funny at the same time.
1: They're able to do it without seeming cruel, necessarily. Like, I think a lot of filmmakers struggle with that kind of dark comedy. Like, there's an inherent meanness or cruelness to the characters. And I think that
3: they avoid that somehow. I think so too and I think the um, um, it's very to bring it back to James M. Kane, that's very something sort of when you look at true crime mm-hmm. or these sort of tabloid stories, there often are very things that are are, funny about how hard it is to kill someone for instance and the postman always rings twice the sort of famous example they try to push the radio into a bathtub they try to kill him a number of times before they actually kill him and there's something sort of uh you know it draws these um you know sort of laughter and horror are very twinned for all of us i mean those are emotions that like brush up against each other and i think that they really play with that and i think you're really right, Barbara, about the, um. you know, they they use the music, Carter Burwell's music and Roger Deakins' so elegant cinematography is to sort of make it all of a sudden bigger and grander in these moments. So it's sort of, it feels like it's very small and very silly. And then all of a sudden they, you step back and it feels tragic um, and mournful. And I think that that sort of, this wonderful dance that the movie provides that I don't think any, I don't think you ever, everyone just tried to copy this movie or this tone and, and it never feels right because it's so specific.
1: We had, we had mentioned in the, in the intro, we had talked about seeing this movie and the impact it had on us. And I mentioned that several years ago, I got to see this in 35 millimeter on a big screen and I hadn't seen it I, I was too young when it came out I didn't see it in theaters when it came out but it was my first time I loved this movie I it was a formative movie for me when I was a teenager so I'd seen it tons of times but this was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen and the scope of the cinematography and the score like like those two things hitting at once it transformed the movie a little bit um those Roger Deacons, vistas where the horizon and the the foreground or like they get lost in one another like the sky and the land are the same color and it's just like this big white expanse of emptiness and just that overwhelming sensation of being in the middle of of whiteout conditions with that carter burwell score going it's just a grand movie while being so small and specific
0: this being the most naturalistic of their films, I think it it becomes the most emotional, which is we've we've talked about all the references you kind of have to get and you know put together to understand some all the previous movies. And this one is just very human that you know people relate to it on a very basic level. That is not intellectual; that it's more emotional.
3: Yes, and it doesn't have the flash a lot of the flashy camera we saw in their movies up uh, uh, before this. They really tried to scale it down and. And I remember even hearing you probably all heard the Roger Deakin's commentary, but he talks about how they kept rejecting locations or setups because they were too good looking. <laughs> and they really try, you know, they mm-hmm. they can make anything look great. Um, but they really wanted it to have this more spare quality that I think is 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 so strategic for it. And it does sort of change it's a it becomes sort of you know a big pivot in their career i mean i love all of their movies but it does sort of open up this new new territory for them because of that and and i have to say and i know jace will agree that the whiteness and the white how the white snow becomes the white sky is (laughs) such a midwestern thing. it fills me with Mm. despair whenever i see it (laughs) because i think there's something (laughs) go ahead I interject
0: i mentioned in the uh the intro that it might start snowing any minute where i am in vancouver and it just started snowing so Sorry, I just wanted to, just wanted to call that out.
3: <laughs> oh, Vancouver. So you you definitely know it. Yeah, so there's something, you know, those long winters, uh, the loneliness. And I think that's something that the movie also taps into, or how lonely so many of these characters are. I mean, you know, even in his sort of greed and and um terribleness, Jerry is a sort of obviously very lonely, um, <laughs> and aspiring and uh but certainly the Whole Mike of uh, uh, Marge's and uh, drinks with Mike, her old high school sweetheart, is which is maybe the key scene of the movie. It sort of swells with loneliness and and sorrow, and I think that that also um, gives it gives it all of this sort of uh, un- previously uncharted depth to the movie um, um, that that makes it so resonant. Mm-hmm.
2: I that actually perfectly leads into something else I wanted to talk about and it's now has this whole new dimension now that you've mentioned uh you've talked about the interview with um Marge as the antagonist but I want to talk about the differences between Marge and Jerry and the first thing I thought about too like you just said like Jerry just feels trapped and he's so unable to hold himself together like there's that scene in the movie after he realizes he's screwed up this financial deal with his father-in-law he just slams the ice scraper against his windshield and or when he's in his office and he's throwing his computer around because um the riley Diefenbach from gmac keeps bugging him off the <laughs> car <laughs> um and marge just seems very knows who she is she's happy where she's at and she shows tremendous patience um, with people, and i I can't help but think of the the interview she gives to the two hookers um about the two fell- the two fellas uh um with the um one with an uncircumcised penis um <laughs> um and Marge kind of seems to have done everything right in her life. she has like this midwestern she's a typical Midwestern woman to me, to what I, what I felt like many people maybe aspire to be. I I don't want to speak for every Midwestern woman. Um, But it seems like the only thing Jerry's ever done right is marry his wife, (laughs) who's very rich and will never have to worry. And, Jerry just seems very obsessed with money and material things and getting out from under the thumb of his father-in-law. And I find it interesting too, that you were talking about Marge, um, Marge's warmth. And I read that Francis McDormand based Marge off her sister, who was like a minister in disciples of Christ. I kind of again want to bring it to the group where some other like maybe differences that we noticed.
0: I mean you did a pretty good job of of the contrast of those two. I think I think some of it's ego. I think in, within Jerry's uh thing that Mar just seems to be lacking ego. She's just a hard worker.
3: I think there is some over overlap though too. I I was reading um I think it was Keith Phipps, the film critic talked about there and I always noticed this um I think that marge has some yearning too. jerry's yearning for to cut as you say get out from under the thumb of his father-in-law i think maybe even is more than just greed it's that he feels emasculated in that household because of his father-in-law and Mm -hmm. um and it's painful to him and he thinks that you know if he just, just just get this deal um that will all change and i think um marge has some ego too you know she she doesn't tell her husband that she's going to see her um, high school friend and she dresses mm-hmm. up to see him um, and is very, um, I think she, her motives are never really explained, but they're fascinating to me because there's something about she's going to the big city and uh, she you know, she's chase down this lead presumably, but it seems like she doesn't need to be there in prison for it. And she wants to have drinks with the uh, this 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 boy she knew in high school and it turned the scene the moment you know it's not what she anticipated obviously and she gets uncomfortable quickly but i think that i think i love that because it we see that that's impulses in her too even if she can't uh, uh would be unlikely to acknowledge it in herself
1: yeah, that, that scene is kind of like a skeleton key to her character and her character's complexity a bit. And it's it's great because it seems like such a throwaway, unnecessary scene at first glance. It's like, why are we wasting five minutes on her meeting this, this friend from high school when he never comes back? That's his only scene. But it shows that... Like you said she has a yearning in her. She shows up dolled up, which you never see her like that anywhere else in the film with her husband. She's never she's never dolled up. Her hair is done, she's got makeup on, she's wearing nice clothes. Like she's made an effort to look really nice in front of this guy from high school, and there's really no reason for her to be there meeting with him alone in a bar. No indication that she's told her husband. And so there's, you know, she she sticks to her you know, her morals and her ethics, nothing nothing untoward ends up happening, but there's a yearning there. She wouldn't have showed up looking like that. It's such like a good character moment, a good character details that you're able to do with like accessories and just the way she carries herself at the beginning of that scene tells you so much.
0: I was never worried about, though, their relationship, her relationship with Norm. I feel like they're, they're pretty solid and it's probably the, the healthiest relationship in the Coen Brothers movie. Um I, I love, I just love Norm, like at the end of the film when she, like she's literally gone through this horrific experience, like tracking down these criminals, watching a guy get stuffed into a wood chipper. And then she comes home and gives emotional support to her husband, whose duck painting didn't, didn't win first place. <laughs> it, like, I just love that so much.
3: But I would say maybe speaks again to the Ethan Cohen's comment that like she doesn't, she never, he's not interested in what happens she doesn't tell him she Mm. does not try to comfort even though though we later find out it's not true Mike and his sorrow she can't (laughs) wait to get out of there like Midwesterners are often very uncomfortable with open emotion and with talking about anything (laughs) Um, I think that this is the Cohen brothers like really showing um, um, that, that even though they obviously have very happy marriage for their standards but I think maybe maybe there is a kind of um shallowness to it 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 works let's not go too deeply into this (laughs) let's not probe our hearts too much and we might consider that some of the other characters who are even they're giving into these darker impulses but you know they're they're at least sort of probing their their interior selves whereas i i think marge uh i mean maybe it will change for her (laughs) after this but um because she's been through something that she that has rocked her her sense of the world. But I, it seems more likely that she'll go back to the way she was.
1: <laughs> you know, we'd brought up earlier uh, No Country for Old Men got mentioned. And I, I had just watched No Country for Old Men just because it's one of my favorite movies. And it's like weirdly one of my comfort movies. And so that was fresh in my mind going into Fargo. And I see some shared, just a little bit of shared DNA between Marge and Tommy Lee Jones in um, No Country for Old Men. And that that ending monologue that Marge gives is so great, you know, just for a little bit of money and it's a beautiful day. And she says at one point, like, I don't understand it. And it just reminded me of Tommy Lee Jones's character in No Country for Old Men. And when he faces Anton Chigurh in that movie, he doesn't understand it. He's like, there's this evil in this world that I don't understand and I can't reckon with it and that's when he ends up retiring at the end of the movie and i i just wonder like if you were to be able to follow marge through the course of her career as a law person like how would her philosophy evolve um but i just saw just that little bit of shared dna between those two characters and found that fascinating
2: what what also fascinates me about marge is when she's it's literally the and it's probably one of the funniest scenes in the movie is that when she's looking at the wreckage of the car that turned over and she says, Oh, I'm gonna barf. And it's not because of what she's witnessed in the car. Yeah. It's because of the morning sickness.
1: Or at least that's what
2: and she
0: says. It,
2: yeah. At least that's what she says.
0: Yeah, yeah you could read it both ways. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And when she sees um the wood chipper, um like she's not again, she's not phased by it. She's got the gun pointed right at, um, right at Wade, right at, you know, do the business to stop, you know, it just amazes me that like, she's, it isn't anything that she sees that phases her. It's what the, the links people will go emotionally um, that she just doesn't understand or messes with her, her, her. Whatever, uh, her soul a little bit. Um, like Mike Yanagita, his why, lying about his wife, um, that hurts her more than, um, seeing a guy's leg in a wood chipper (laughs) you know
3: i think though it's uh i agree with everything you're all saying but but i do again i'm really stuck on this uh, ethan cohen because to me um i suppose the difference between the tommy lee jones character i feel like that's maybe, maybe she will end up in that place but he's speaking out of real experience with the world. And I, yeah, I think Marge right. is not, I think she closes the, I think, you know what? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a nice day, but you don't know what sorrows or troubles these people are going. you don't know what led them to this and you don't seem to care, you're not interested in it. Well, you know, it's not this simple. Um, I think, I think that that's, and I think that's also why she can sort mm. of coolly regard her crimes. She's not letting any of it into her, her sort of narrow moral, uh, view and I think my my sense of thinking a relation to No Country is in some ways mm-hmm. you wish should be more like the um, the wife at the end of No Country who sort of has a revelation has had these sort of revelations about. Um, the complexity of the moral universe, and I think Marge. Um, I don't think there's any sign to suggest. I think her saying that oh, it's a beautiful day is actually a sign that she hasn't taken any of this in, um, and that um, she's just uh, going to go back. But maybe not by as long when she's been doing it as long as Tommy Lee Jones. So maybe that will. I mean, I
1: think it just speaks to like Marge or um, um, Francis McDormand's performance that I always like. Feel like there's more depth to her than is like immediately evident on the page. Like she just it, like, you know, her saying it's a beautiful day is ridiculous because it's like not a beautiful day. It's horrible. <laughs>
3: <outside>. <laughs> but I feel
1: but I feel like these are like the little fictions that she tells herself to make it through each day and to make it through the work that she does in the place that she lives and that there's a chance that those little fictions will crack you know, like like and I think it all speaks to just, you know, you had said that, you know, that she was sort of like, quote unquote, the antagonist or the villain of the piece. But I think that she just brings like as an actress so much warmth and dimension and depth to the performance of Marge that she ends up becoming a lot more than maybe she was on page.
3: I agree. I, I think the movie, if, if she were as as the Coen's you know originally conceived I don't think the movie would work I think you do need her humanity to come through yeah. even if even if um we don't know if if she has moved into any introspection I think Mcnorman is such a smart actor and ha- yeah brings all that humanity that that um that makes us be able to have these conversations about it you know it's sort of it's the you yeah. know it's just like that scene at the with Mike it's sort of they put in these mysteries that aren't exactly solved. You know, some people interpret that scene as that when she finds out that he's lying, that's when she realizes that people could be lying. Jerry might be lying. It's, And I think that's the sort of script mm-hmm. reason for the scene and why it takes, but the reason it takes up five minutes is not that there's something more going on there. And there's something that, that, um, that, she, that she's not ready for, um, that he gives to her, even before she knows he's lying. Um, and the fact that he's lying, it doesn't really change his pain and his emotional upset. Um, but there's, there's, there's no room for it in it. So I think that sort of, that's, I think, yeah, let's see, that's, you know, it's, I always compare it to, In Hammett, in the Maltese Falcon, he has this long story called the Flitcraft episode, and it's just one character telling another story that has no relation to anything else in the rest of the book. And the book is very short, and you really realize after that it's the key to the whole book, but you don't really know (laughs) what it exactly means. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways that scene is the the Flitcraft of, of, of this movie.
2: I was watching um, this thing on Campy uh, called the great courses and Fargo was part 12 in a series of uh, about great screenplays. And they took this, um, this, the Mike uh, Yanagata scene out specifically because how so unrelated it is to the film. We never go back to Mike. We, he gets no retribution for what he's done, but it is the scene that I think says the most about, not only about Marge, but like you said, uh, Megan, it also, if it wasn't for that happening, he, she would have never, would have never led her to um, Jerry, realizing that he's a a liar. Um, And he's always been a liar (laughs) because he puts true coat, <laughs> he <says> he's right. <laughs>
0: you, you need to be a little bit that way to be a car salesman. I think.
3: Yes, I exactly. <laughs> and that's
2: funny too. Is so like that scene. Those two people, and who got the true coat that didn't want the true coat. We never see them again. But it tells you a lot about Jerry. <laughs>
3: Um, it's a sort of little David Mamet like uh, uh <laughs> strand of the story that I love so much because we've all you know everyone has been there I, I had read that Ethan Cohen took it directly from a pitch he got from a car salesman like verbatim um and, and just put it right in there um and I kind of uh, love that the um you know the Um, you know, that's his job and that's sort of his accepted job. And what everyone's job is seems really important in the movie. There's certainly Marge's, but also her husband that, you know, he's a wildlife painter. He's the artist. He's the sort of stereotypically feminine one in the relationship. And I think all of those, elements are so so interesting about the the work one does um and yeah and the the sort of roiling emotions uh, underneath it
0: uh we talked about in the raising arizona episode the inversion of the male female dynamic and between uh hi and ed it's like she's the police officer and he's like the more sensitive poetic one so that's another connection to another one of their films
3: exactly yes that's right i forgot about that yes
0: i I certainly would be the norm in this relationship i'm not going to carry a gun. And go after criminals. I'm sitting here making pictures at home. (laughs) (laughs) I am the norm in my relationship.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say that like, I feel like William H. Macy's performance kind of gets not overlooked, but under talked mm-hmm. about. But I think he's just phenomenal in this movie. And I think one of my favorite bits of performance in the film is when he gets <laughs> caught. At the end, they they go to the motel where he's hiding out and he's trying to squirrel away. Like, there's just this raw animal desperation in his performance that just hits me really hard every time. And he's such a pathetic figure. Um, he, he should be completely contemptible having his wife kidnapped and, um, the way that he, uh, behaves within his family and, you know, he's he's a liar, he's trying to, to enact all of these schemes. He's not a very redeemable person, but he plays him with this sense of just, like, such pathetic grasping need that I feel a kind of sympathy for him that I just it it's all down to that amazing performance
3: I so agree I remember reading that they didn't intend it to be they didn't tend to cast it that way that that they had a much more I guess how he is on the page that he's sort of contemptible a schmuck you know and that um um but that William H. Macy, who really wanted the part badly, it gave it this sort of twitchy, stuttering, anxious energy that I think, much as we, you were saying with Francis McDormand, like it really give brown it makes it such a fuller person and you do sympathize with him because um because you can't help but you know even though you don't, don't sympathize with any of his choices but that kind of that sort of sweaty desperation it's hard not to and the way he's so humiliated by his father-in-law and the way you know no one respects him and that you know you just sort of feel feel for him um even even at the mm-hmm. end i think
0: can, can I add my uh, really uh, serious personal connection to this film in relation to Jerry Lundegaard, the William H. Macy character, and re- one of the reasons why I connect with this movie still, and it's one of those uh, formative movies for me, uh, when I was about 12, the same age as Scotty, around, around the same age as Scotty in this movie, my dad committed a stupid petty crime, which kind of led to the unraveling of his life and our family's financial security, uh, it led to more stupid petty crimes and it led to him lying and cheating Uh, stealing from and manipulating even friends and family so as you can imagine like as a teenager This is kind of hard to process and I'm not sure I even did back then But when I watched this film for the first time I was 18 and I saw so much of my dad in Jerry Lundergaard I saw the 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 pathetic desperation um, In like the anger and the arrogance, but mostly it was the ego Um, because that really key scene between him and Wade when he's asking Wade for money for this business investment, when he said, Jerry's saying, this can work out real well for me and Gene and Scotty. And Wade says, uh, but Gene and Scotty don't have to worry. Implying that like I'm the alpha in this family, I'm the provider. And all that's at stake here, Jerry, is your ego. Uh, like what, what it means to be a man in society. And that's, that was my dad. It was, it was ego. I think he always wanted to be like, up, appear to be the upstanding well-to-do citizen So even when he had money or could get his hands on a credit card, sometimes not his own credit card, uh, he was buying himself nice clothes rather than feeding or sheltering his family. So when I'm watching this movie for the first time on the big screen at age 18, it's allowing me to start processing some of this stuff. And I think that's a real value of cinema and fiction, um, that it gives you the safe space to process things, to deal with things that are difficult. So when you say that you you felt sympathy for Jerry. Um, that was something I think was necessary for me to start processing this as well. So anyway, you guys can send me the, the bill for therapy later. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's incredible. I, I think that makes so much sense. And um, and I think without that performance in that character, that might not have happened in some ways um, because he, he does make, give him so much humanity and also i mean did did it that you saw the ego did you also feel maybe um did it bring him down to size for you in some way when you saw it at 18
0: yeah it made me understand it better just to put it into context that it's like not just my dad this is a personality type like this this happens sometimes i just got a uh, you know bad draw unlucky and who my dad was and you uh, you have to kind of deal with it but at least I understood that it wasn't a one off thing. It wasn't unique, that it was this is a type, and I could start to understand the psychology of this. Uh, I can't really necessarily accept Sorry. it or understand it totally, but that this movie helped me at least start understanding
3: much an american type it's even you know because there's that notion that of the, the the american male is supposed to um make a lot of money be a, you know success 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 um and that cutting quarters has always been a part of the mythos too so that that part of it i think is that this that the cohen's are cutting away our is that is that you know you know what that what that model suggests to, to men everywhere in small towns, you know, when their sort of um, uh, jobs at the car dealership and they're supposed to, you know, making these big scores and making these big moves. And there's something, the sort of dangerous um, power that, that, that's that, um, that trope uh, um, puts out there. I think that's, I mean, it, it is something that Mamet does explore too, but I think, the way and in the um, you feel in the, the way they treat the son in the movie feels very tender, um, alongside everything else. There's this few moments when he's worried, um, you know, and it's almost like Jerry forgot because remember, if someone says, Well, how's how's he, how's, how's your son doing? and it, it's yeah. like he didn't mm-hmm. even think about it, and then he goes and sees him. All that's so, um, I think so affecting, um, and tells you so
2: much. And to bring that to another thing. Another dimension to it, just something that hit me like ten minutes ago, is that it's never overtly mentioned in the film, but Marge is in a rare company of being a detective who is female and pregnant. Um, and it's it's never like I'll mention in the film, but I think it adds a dimension to her that she is definitely, you know that. Changing that stereotype of detectives in movies, um, but it's never like it's not the reason. They never mention the movie, which I think yeah. is like important. Like it's just there, but can you imagine like the backstory on that? Like to, I don't know. I I probably shouldn't say anymore. Being a a white male. But I'm kind of curious, like that perspective, like how it's never mentioned in the movie.
3: It's such a great point um, because it also doesn't do what we might expect where she gets some guff from her deputy or there's some rolling eyes of like that the men don't fully respect her. There's, there's just not even an issue because I think maybe some stereotypes perhaps of conservative Midwest might. Even if they were to have it, it'd have to be a big issue. They'd have to make a big point of it. But that's so interesting. I had never really thought about how little mention is made of even while she's pregnant. So she's visibly sort of wearing her her femininity. Um, um, but it's and she but she's unquestionably the authority um, in those scenes. Just, that's fascinating.
0: She she was asked in an interview if if a uh, police woman like this far along in pregnancy are actually allowed to do this kind of work. And her response was, you betcha. <laughs> uh, in St. Paul, I met Officer Nancy, who was seven months pregnant and still working. She was on the Vice Squad doing search and seizure. Oh, I love so, it. <laughs> apparently a real thing. Wow.
2: Um, I kind of want to talk about accents. <laughs> okay. Um, for just a second. Something that occurred to me on this watch um, that I did last night that I'd never noticed before. But it occurred to me that the only two people without a Minnesota accent would be Carl and Wade, the two bad guys. And of course, Jose Feliciano. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got no complaints with <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, you got no complaints with Jose Feliciano. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Um but it kind of just that, that occurred to me is like, they are as Megan pointed out earlier, like, they are like the two strangers who walk into the Midwest and the world that is. And you definitely see in Carl, Steve Buscemi's character, how he just gets beat up and doesn't know, like, you know, doesn't take Jerry being late for an hour, but doesn't want to debate it either. He just talks and talks and talks all the time. Um, Whereas, with Westerners, kind of you know, keep everything bottled up inside and don't show their anger, even if you're an hour late to a meeting. <laughs> um, I does that like, um, am I wrong on that with the accents? And also, like, what does that say about Carl and Wade?
3: It's so interesting, like, we und- we don't really know. Are they supposed to be – they're from Fargo or is that just where we meet them? I can't remember.
2: He – he, Jerry meets Carl through Shep. Right. The mechanic. Um, But I – no one – like I just assume that Carl is like this New Yorker who just happened to be at the – I, I've constructed this very interesting backstory for Carl, where he just—well, <laughs> he talks yeah. like a New Yorker. <laughs> um, I don't have a story for Wade. He, he just—well,
3: I think he's such a model, Like he's such a We should mention that performance. Peter Storm Stormare I, is a wonderful character actor, but he's so great in it. But he's almost like. Is he talks about the pancake house, H A U S. So I think supposed to be of Swedish uh, or descent, but I, I, it doesn't seem like, I mean, maybe they're from Fargo, but they're certainly not from Minnesota. Um, um, but they're definitely not from the same place either. But we never really find out. But they're definitely strangers there, right? Which is really what you're saying, right, uh, Jason, that, that they're, um, that they, um, and the fact that Carl talks ceaselessly <laughs> <laughs> will almost never You're spot
2: <laughs> geyser of conversation
3: <laughs> is uh um, remember Frances mcdormand saying that she realized when the crew and and the coen brothers and everyone laughed so much at everything they did is that's when she realized that they they too thought that she was the villain in the movie because <laughs> they were having so much when they were on screen, and then, um, at, but not when she was. But I think it is so. They are definitely the outsiders here, right? I think you're right. Um, and the fact that we can't exactly place them only adds to that. I mean, I think the notion is that that they met in prison, that they met, um, the, the the connection. Um, but their their liminality, I think, is 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 key to it. That they don't understand the code, they don't understand the rules. Um, um. And it, look, look where it gets them.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: they're so good too. The Coens are so
1: good at, at being able to like pair different dynamics, like that sort of like one's loquacious and you know high energy and high strung, and the other one is sedate and quiet. And so it's this sort of like weird buddy duo that they've that they're gonna repeat in a different. Same same sort of combo in The Big Lebowski Walter. in their next yeah. film with the dude and um, John Goodman. Yeah. So, like, they're just really good at being able to, like, pair these different dynamics for, like, high comedic effect.
0: It's <laughs> just a trope that works over and over and over. Just that odd couple pairing.
1: It, yeah. it, they're so good at it.
3: And that they... they don't, that they stand out there, right? They're, he's the funny looking dude, you know, every way they're described by people. I think it is sort of, in some ways it's like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in reverse because they're they're the ones coming in, um, and and so, you know they're this sort of force of malevolence coming from Fargo. <laughs> the darkness comes from Fargo, and and but really, but really, is that the case? Because it's only when they start to tangle with the Midwesterner, the Minnesotians, um, that things really go awry, uh, which I think is really interesting, and it, it sort of leads me to that. But I think one of the things that um, that separates this from a lot of some noir is that there is an order restored at the end though like a lot of noir it's a questionable order like everything and you know we're so worried the first time aren't you so worried that something's going to happen to mars because she's pregnant and she's around you know you're really scared when she shows up at that cottage um but, but order is restored and, you know, everybody is sort of uh, has to pay for their misdeeds. But it feels uneasy, not in the level of no country, but it's I see, again, the connection between the two that 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 that, that no country is maybe sort of the operatic version or the sort of deeper version of this, because it there does seem something. Um, you know, the strangers have come mm-hmm. to town, they've brought their darkness and the darkness has been contained, but, but what did it sort of let that loose mm-hmm. in the process?
0: Yeah. Again, going back to that small town with the dark secret that nobody talks about.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's going to talk yeah. about that wood chipper in that town forever. <laughs> the wood chipper says, <laughs> guarantee you that. <laughs> uh, but- well,
0: I've actually got some, some info on the actual wood chipper that was owned by, um, guy named milo durbin he was a farmer from delano minnesota he was a dolly grip on the film and that wood chipper had its own float in the fourth of july parade in the town of delano (laughs) and uh, it was it was displayed in the shop window in a movie display for a while
1: amazing that
2: is such a
0: (laughs) a midwestern thing
2: it's such a Midwest thing.
1: <laughs> it was also a promotional... We were discussing how it was like a promotional snow globe at the time where you could shake it and it, there was like some red snow within the regular snow.
0: Apparently, him, he, the guy that owned it, him and his wife, they still use it to chip wood on their farm.
3: <laughs> oh, no. It should be in a oh, museum. It's obviously <laughs> a high-quality high, high quality wood chipper if it's lasted this long. I did yeah. read that the even though it's not, despite the claim at the beginning, based on a true story... There was a, there is a wood chipper, a husband killing his wife and disposing her body a wood chipper story that predates it that they think they took that element from, but it was in Connecticut, not the Midwest. So, okay. um, there were a few Midwestern stories that closely mimicked the, the husband trying to get his wife kidnapped for the money and it going awry, but the, um, but uh, a guy, um, I think he's a pilot, was married a flight attendant he was having an affair. She found out and he killed her and he disposed of her in a wood chipper. <laughs> so, so the Coens didn't invent it, but I'd like to think they made it famous.
0: <laughs> Can we talk for a second about the aspect of the true story thing? Because I, I took it for, for, for real when the first time I saw it, obviously. Yeah. I didn't have the internet to debunk anything. Snopes.com didn't exist yet. Uh, and Megan, I know you've written a couple of novels based on true crimes, uh, one which I read this week, "The Buried Me Deep. Um, all three of us are, have connections to Phoenix. Barbara and Jason are in, currently in Phoenix. Oh,
3: my gosh. Amazing. I've been there many times.
0: You based this book on the most famous murder in Phoenix, I believe, where two women end up in trunks in Los Angeles.
3: Very, another famous body disposal of true crime. So that yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> If I can give you a compliment for a second without insulting the things that you love, I've read Hammett and Chandler and I enjoyed your work more than
3: Oh, thank than you. Thank
0: you. Mostly because of the psychology of the, the character. It reminds me more of Patricia Highsmith than Chandler or Hammett.
3: She's a huge huge uh, influence on me for sure. I uh, very much that's sort of where I come at it from and that I, th- I suppose that's probably why I've been so stuck on this Marge interpretation because the psychology of it is so so fascinating to me. I think that is the appeal of a lot of these true crimes, is sort of what what made this series of circumstances, made this happen. And it, I think it gives it this sort of funny gra- faux, faux gravitas that they put the tag on at the beginning. Especially, it wouldn't mean anything to do that in a movie now, because as you say, people could just Google it immediately. But then it, it would be something where you would wonder... Um, I think I read that it was a few weeks into shooting that the Coens admitted to the casting crew that it wasn't. they. Until then, they <laughs> thought it was too, so, which I, I kind of love. I like the commitment to the bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that it's just like this artifact of a different era, right? It's like right on the cusp of real internet accessibility and culture. It's right before, like right as that was starting to happen. So it's just like a, a cinematic artifact from... The mid '90s—that wouldn't be possible now.
3: That's absolutely true. It's making me think of another movie from around this era. Speaking of Phoenix area, which is the Autofocus about the Bob Crane um, uh, true crime. It's totally not that different. It does. It's a there's a lot dark comedy in it, um, but it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could you could really. Um, these were stories you would hear about. It's hard to explain to someone under the age of 20 about how the world worked then, but you know you, you could find out about some of these tabloid cases. Um, yeah. And you really had to kind of dig. But I think it also lends maybe hearing that, seeing the credits over the, um, or seeing the opening um, based on a true story over that, Carter Burwell soaring score, it, it, I think it does sort of give it this sort of sense of this Midwestern myth, this sort of legend. These are the legends of the Midwest um, that I kind of love about it, you know, so that something you hear in the music and the, in the look of it, but that this is its specificity, I think is one of its great gifts. This is very much about a specific place. And also that Paul Bunyan statue, when you talk about myth,
1: right, like to yes. which they made specifically for that film, this like looming figure with an axe, which, you know, was sort of like a spirit for the entire movie. But like, you know, that further sort of like entrenches it in the realm of kind of myth.
0: Tall tales. Yeah, they, they tell you it's it's true. And then they immediately tell you it's false, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> subconsciously.
3: It's, yeah, it goes again to that American myth of the, of the you know, American male, the salesman, the high, t- you know, all these sort of things that the Coens just always want to sort of pop all those balloons throughout the movie. They're just one after the next, mm-hmm. that uh, um, I the kind of love. Um, did you all have different experiences then watching it most recently? Has it changed even since maybe the last time you saw it?
2: Uh, for me, um, it changes every time I see it. Yeah. It. it I, I. I. know it seems like the the cliche thing to say, but I always discover something new. And like I said, like the um the more now that I have been, I, I recently went back to Detroit like a few months ago, um for the first time in a decade, and those, the subversive elements of the Midwest, um kind of came back to me and like flooded my mind and seeing them all again on display it really kind of hit close to home a little bit and like how everyone's so friendly and yet (laughs) not (laughs) and um, again like the accents and um, the cutting it close with um, how much of a shot it takes at at the region. Um, but, um, and even just discovering to how well they can balance that, that line between humor and suspense um, and the accents. I always learn something new from, the, from this movie in particular.
0: I feel like I've seen it so many times now in the last couple of watches, I wasn't able to get anything new out of it in a way. At least in the context of the last film we we watched, I'd only seen The Hudsucker Proxy about a year and a half ago for the first time, and went down a huge research rabbit hole and like found so much more to appreciate of that out of that movie because of all the references and the depth. And Fargo is just it is what it is. I'm not sure I can. I'll never experience it the same way I did the first time or the first few times. It's just I've seen it. I can quote it. Nothing's a surprise anymore. I still consider it my favorite, but I think there's not much I. Not a whole lot more I can get out of it out of it after like watching it ten times.
1: I I will say that as I get older, um, I understand the like Loneliness and the desperation a little bit better. Um, I think my sympathy for Jerry increases with every watch as I uh am faced with more disappointment in life. Like, I can't, you know, not on the same scale, but like, I can understand where that sense of desperation to prove yourself and to get a leg up and and to fulfill you know some need of your ego, uh, that's been unfulfilled by this point in your life. And like, I can just really appreciate the loneliness and desperation that's so much at the heart of so many of these characters
3: i bet that was experience i had this time too i must <laughs> say it must be yep. my age telling me but it, it was something uh, um that you know that feels rather exotic when you're say 20 um that you know, i mean you don't even really understand the same way maybe you're just thinking about this about money right. or people being foolish or but but later when you see this sort of you know that 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 the, that you're you know time there's less time ahead of you than behind you and what have you made you know and even the little things like um, when Mike is lying about his job and Marge says oh you're doing really well but right. he's lying you know this sort of notion that everyone's kind of putting up this false front this facade even Marge in that scene you know sort of. You know, dressing up in a way she doesn't normally dress, and you know, everyone is sort of um, wanting to be something that they're not, or that they may be fantasized of being, and they can't get there. And I think that that really um, that really sort of lingered with me this time. Um, and I think um, I think it's yeah, maybe you know that you know you think the movies. Each time you see it you. or something, but it's really you who have changed. And, and and I do know what you mean, Chris, about having like a, a static. I mean, I think so, there are movies I have that relationship with where they're so <laughs> ingrained in me that that um, that it would sort of almost be impossible to penetrate because they're in they're almost inside me at that point. But but um, but I think, yeah, this one for me is one that um, much like No Country, just gets heavier for me each time and at, mm-hmm. at the same time as I enjoy it more somehow <laughs> the, the 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 random like
1: throwaway scene that that like it's no scene is throwaway in this movie but that filled me with like weird desperation was when um marge and norm go to dinner and they're at this buffet and they just pile their plate full of like meatballs and and meat and they just sit in this like very sad dining room with everybody else in town eating dinner and not talking and I was just like that's all of our lives to a certain extent (laughs) and it's just like the the sort of like pattern and sameness when you hit a certain stride in adulthood and it's like yep this is our life this is the night we go out to the buffet and we sit there and we eat our meatballs and it's just like they're able to like I don't know. I just felt like such a sense of quiet despair this time. (laughs)
2: Yeah. As someone who grew up with many a dinner with his grandparents at the (laughs) Cracker Barrel All Country Buffet. That that scene hit hard. Yeah, my mom's (laughs) favorite
1: rush. My mom was very sick for a very long time. She didn't, she couldn't, that's a whole other story but her favorite place to go was the old country buffet and so in my 20s mm-hmm. i spent many a night with my parents sitting in the old country buffet trying not to like cry <laughs> over a plate of something awful and so yeah that hit a little personal <laughs> yep
3: i feel it i feel it I, I, that that scene had, had the same effect on me uh and i think when i saw it when i was younger. It just felt like a cheap jab at the Midwest because of all the buffets. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, which, it, it I mean, it's not a cheap jab. It is a jab in some ways, but of course that's not just the Midwest. In some mm-hmm. ways it's because the Midwest yeah. of is America in many ways. It's sort mm-hmm. of the heartland. And and I think, um, you know, the Coens have a sort of healthy uh, 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 questioning of, of of American mythos. Uh, but also, um, I think... On a character level, the more smallness and pettiness of the characters, the more empathy yeah. they seem to have for them, which mm-hmm. is why I think Steve Buscemi they they like so much because, um, because his petty frustrations um, feel so so human too, and I think um, I think that balance is really what, again, what this mm. movie really masters and mm. uh, makes it um, so. Um, impossible to repeat you know the the tv series or whatever has sort of followed uh, the countless movies that tried to to mimic this much like they did with twin peaks which is also so Mm -hmm. specific Mm -hmm. um just will never never land with me the same way
2: yeah and that's kind of where i kind of wanted to wind things down was like the influence of this movie like there is the tv show which we were discussing i've never seen but i think barb had seen the first couple seasons yeah i've seen it too
1: Mm-hmm. I saw the first two seasons, and the third season lost yeah. me completely.
2: And there's that movie, Kamiko, the Treasure Hunter, which is about the woman who's obsessed with the money that C. Buscemi uh, left in the field <laughs> because she thought the story was real. Um, do you see any other influences of this movie in, like, maybe books, TV, um Movies.
3: I feel like there were a hundred of them the year after this movie came out. I mean, I, they were, but all so wrong-headed. I mean, there was um, m- always much broader and much more violent at the same time. I mean, it's hard to say much more violent. This is a very violent movie in many ways, but um, this is the same time that Tarantino was really hitting. And so the, like between the two, everyone was sort of ripping off one or the other or some, un, um, some really unholy merging of them both. And I think... Um, you know, they, they always copy the wrong things, right? So they would just sort of be stooges screwing things up and um, um, they'd just never be... All the things we talked about today, about the sort of larger issues of the of, that the movie raises or the sort of many ways you can interpret a given scene or the uh, emotional depths, I think it's, it's much, much trickier. I mean, I think they've had a... You know, I think we're seeing their larger Coen Brothers influence on on many filmmakers that were, you know, maybe young when this came out. Maybe it needs to be more processed and people sort of the, the extent of seeing their whole oeuvre, the whole Coen's oeuvre and how rich it is. Um, but at that time, just sort of copying Fargo, it just seemed to be like making fun of small town people. Um, um and very broad ways
1: well you know how i said like they're able to do this movie without seeming cruel that's what everybody else fails at all the copycats (laughs) fail at it's like an indictment you're making fun of the characters rather than like really getting into the psychology and what's wrong there and we did have in my mind in my memory we had like a one two three punch in the 90s of fargo train spotting and pulp fiction and i feel like those three movies Together spawn so many copycats trying to do darkness and dark comedy, um, and violence and taking away all of the wrong lessons.
0: Yeah, I think I watched hundreds of those from the video store in the nineties. Same, um, Same. <laughs> and no, nothing ever lived. That's a good point. That that the, the trinity of those three films, the verisimilitude of those films, I think, and the quirkiness and the spe- specificity is what makes them work. You can take you can take it apart and try to put it back together, but if you don't have the the heart and the intelligence, uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, I think the only movie
2: that I can think of that even comes close that's influenced by Fargo is um, that comes close to like capturing something close to it is um, their friend Sam Raimi when they, he did a simple plan. I was gonna say that. I,
0: yeah
3: but, but isn't isn't that b- the year before this or is it after i thought that was right it's definitely before. after i don't
0: know what is it 98
3: um, oh it's after okay because yeah. i definitely think of them yeah. very yeah i put them in the same sort of corner of my head i think that's a great cop, but it makes so much sense since they came up together and collaborated together um that's great
2: mm-hmm. yeah i think a movie has come close post fargo um to capturing what the feeling of that movie is. And it's because Raimi of all people is on the wavelength. He's Detroit filmmaker. He kind of gets the vibe. I don't even think that's what he was going for probably, but kind of comes off that way.
3: And and that's a adaptation of a great crime novel. So uh, another one that I, and now I can't remember. This is right around the same time, but that seems close to me is Gus Van Sant's To Die For. Oh yeah, which is another yeah, which is another tabloid case. It's very funny and yet also has these sort of other elements. It's 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 a little even more comedic, but. But there are seems like there's something tonally and it's not what Gus Van Sant would ever really do again. But I always thought that was um, a good one. It's sort of taking those sort of pulpy elements of a true crime and sort of doing something very clever with them while still honoring the sort of pulpiness of the (laughs) of the original
2: story. It's another one of those movies I had to wait another month uh, before it came below eight miles, <laughs> that's when you knew it was going to be good. <laughs> you had to
0: wait till it, for it to float downriver.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and then it's funny too. Is like um, we talk about the the contempt. It. I, I was kind of curious too about your um, the complicated relationship you had, Megan, because when I was looking over reviews of this. Um, I, Siskel and Ebert got right and so it was the best film of 96 but um like Richard Corliss of Time and a few others that just showed so much contempt for the Midwest uh which is funny because that's where the Coen brothers are from um but it was like such a breakthrough like for them as far as like critical standing and also money because I think it's the highest grossing movie they ever did up until this point um it's, I'm curious. Hey, like come back to your, um, your complicated relationship. Do you, did it feel like it was, like *Corliss*, where it felt like, it was kind of poking fun at where we're where we're from, and where would anyone, where would you, where do you rank this movie as far as the Coen Brothers?
3: Yeah, I I really think, and and I can't speak for *Corliss*, but I I think for me, um it was actually because it was too close. Um, so I couldn't see it without seeing it through the lens of, um, where I come from. Um, so it felt, I guess, um, so I don't, I think it was my failure in meeting the movie, I guess, or sort of maybe not my failure, but, um, um, my, (laughs) my, um, I wasn't ready to look at, at, um, where I came from, yeah, in the way that they were, even if I don't agree with every element of, you know, I don't. I think they're. I mean, I don't know. I do agree with many of their, <laughs> their view of the Midwest. I guess um, their quarter of the Midwest with this particular story. Um, I think I felt like it was um, um, at the time. It wasn't something that that I could even set set out and look at. It was just too close. It was just. It was too. Um, um i hadn't even thought of it being a specific thing in fact i think a lot of midwesterners have this experience where you because you're considered so generic uh you you know you're not like a a new yorker you're not like a bostonite you're not like a so you know there's sort of the south has its own sort of demons that but midwest has always been this sort of so i couldn't even step out to look at it that way in a way they can and now i i I think it's, um, I don't have that problem with it anymore. I have that, I have the distance I need, but also the affection that I think also enriches it for me. Um, um, probably more affection than they have for the Midwest. But, so I think I've come to terms with it. And and again, it was really um, just, um, um just uh too intimate uh revelation <laughs> <Not first viewing. laughs> how about for you it didn't
2: hit me probably because i was only 18 and i wanted to get out of detroit anyway <laughs> yeah. um because uh, or downriver anyway um but um it didn't a lot of the elements like like it's funny now is i'm thinking about that uh that buffet scene, I I realize that there probably is a smorgasbord or a vegan house or some type of buffet place in every corner of yes uh, of Detroit. Like they literally pop up like Starbucks, um, over there. Um, but no, it's I didn't pick up on it until like like later in life, like how much it's kind of poking fun. But I had just been just someone who's getting into film and i was more taken by like the the noir elements of the story so the midwestern elements didn't yeah. hit me at the at the first viewing now i i don't think i don't think it pokes fun at all i think it's very endearing
1: I was a 14 year old in Arizona when this movie came out, who never been to or necessarily like met anybody from the Midwest, so it may have well been like set on the moon, like it was so (laughs) exotic to me. And it's with again with time and with age, you know, you'd called it the heartland of America, like like the Midwest really is a representation of America. And there's so much here that's familiar to me as an adult in Arizona who has not spent significant time in the Midwest. It's like, oh no, this this gets at something. I know it's super specific to the Midwest, and I appreciate that, but it's really getting at something at the heart of like an American experience in general that I can find so relatable now. Yeah, and those buffets are
3: everywhere now too, right? <laughs> they
1: are. Not only
0: uh, <laughs> Midwest, it's middle class. I think yeah. almost every city. It's That's a very common.
2: Yes. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, maybe this could be the last thing, we didn't mention Roderick James, the uh, the editor of all Cohen Brothers films, <laughs> who didn't really make a splash until he was nominated for uh, an Oscar for Best Editing, and they had to admit that this was a fictional person that they'd constructed. They even, you know, made a resume for him. Uh, so when he was nominated, he did he didn't show up, and when the Cohen Brothers were asked about it, they just said, "Oh, he's at home right now on Hayward's Heath watching cricket on TV." So. <laughs> No one bothered to question his existence until he was nominated for an Oscar. Um, so that they were planning to have Albert Finney show up to accept the award in disguise <laughs> as, they, like, as a friend of, of Roderick James. Um, but the Academy wouldn't let him do that because of Marlon Brando had gotten in some trouble years before in 73 when he allowed a, a Native American woman to accept his, yeah. his Oscar and read a letter from Brando criticizing uh, Native people's treatment in, this, in the States. But at this point, Roderick James has edited every Coen Brothers films, but it's it's just a that's just their pseudonym for Joel and Ethan editing all of their films.
3: <laughs> well, now you can see why I was nervous to interview with them because
0: I was. Really <laughs> I know
3: we're gonna pull a Roderick, you know, and somehow uh, pass off. And An interesting. Um, Added layer to that. I don't know if you all read, but it, it, I guess it turned out that the woman who accepted the award on behalf of Marlon Brando isn't actually Native American. Um, this was just oh, this year oh, wow. <laughs> revealed, which is a Fargo-like um, <laughs> a level of confusion around it. It's um, um, so yeah. That I guess it was because they were honoring that moment or something and someone uh, looked at the tribal registries and and... well her sister says her sister
1: says that she's and they she has a contentious relationship with her sister though so i'm not sure entirely what the story is there her name's sashi little feather she died recently after the academy that's right yes did an official apology to her um but her sister says that she's fraudulent in her claims of uh being native american but i don't know that that's actually verified because her sister's kind of they have like a weird relationship and her sister's kind of a weird it's 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 messy
3: it is. I know that then, though, there was an investigation or they went through all the registries. Of oh, the tra- okay. Uh, anyway, but anyway, I don't know. It's strange. Neither of it's us a still. strange. That's what we'll say. But either way, either way, it feels like a cohen <laughs> level of uh, like a labyrinth. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, whenever, you know, um, um, it was a nice gesture on everyone's <laughs> part. <laughs> but anyway.
2: Um, is there anything anybody wants to add? Um, Before we kind of wrap this up.
3: Well, I just want to thank you all. This has been so much fun and such a great excuse to dive back into the movie, which, you know, one hardly needs an excuse to rewatch Fargo, <laughs> but this really <laughs> gave me one. And uh, and uh, this has been... Uh, now I sort of... I feel like next time I watch it, we'll be informed by this conversation and it will change again for me all over No, again.
1: I like immediately want to go after this conversation. This is like the highest compliment I can give a podcast recording is I immediately want to go watch it again right now with our entire conversation in mind
2: yeah especially looking um especially with the depth that you've brought to it with um marge as the antagonist as as opposed to the protagonist (laughs) i definitely want to watch it again tonight yeah all right Um, thank you megan um megan thank you so much i'm so honored to talk to you um and making time for us
3: I can't wait to catch up on all your episodes, and I will be—I will be listening going forward. This has been such fun. Thank you so much. This is awesome.
1: Um, you been to the celebrity room before with other uh, clients? I don't think so. Nice.
0: Yeah, well, depends on the artist, you know. Jose Feliciano, you got no complaints. Waiter. Mama, take a
3: chance on me, hey. Don't hesitate now.
2: Let's find each other tonight. Ah, hey.
0: The Life of the Mind is edited and produced by me, Chris Ayres. Music by Nick Shelby and Mike Brenner at CosmicAmericanMusic.com. You can follow us on social media on Twitter at Cohen Brothers Pod, and on Instagram and Facebook at The Life of the Mind Pod. You can also find my designs for Cohen Brothers alternative movie posters at etsycom shop Creative.